Hi, this is Eric Myers, and you are listening to the Top Fermented Podcast, Episode 4, A New Hope. Or rather, Ingredients. So, uh, we're going to talk about ingredients this week, and a, a lot of the reasons that I'm doing this is actually to sort of set up uh, podcasts in the future. There's uh, there's a lot to be said about ingredients, and, and down the road, I know I'm going to want to talk about uh, ingredients and how they influence beer, and so I, I kind of wanted to take the point of laying down a, a base work of information about ingredients for people. And, you know, if you're, uh, if you're in beer, and you're a home brewer, and or in the brewing industry, this might be uh, one of the more boring episodes for you, but maybe not. There, uh, there, there could be some information here that you're like, wow, I never would have thought about saying it that way. Or even, hey, uh, I think that guy's wrong, which I'm, you know, totally welcome to, uh, to hear arguments with. Especially because I'm going to lay this out in front of you uh, and start this way. All beer is made out of five ingredients. So I know that uh, if you're a fan of the Reinheitsgebot, uh, which is the German purity law of 15-something or other, uh, you feel that beer is made out of four ingredients and four ingredients only. But I think that, that history will bear with me here, or, or hear me out, and say that beer is really, for the most part, made out of five ingredients. Sure, you can make beer out of four ingredients, absolutely, without a doubt. But I feel very strongly that if you're talking about the vast majority of beer, you're really talking about five. And here they are. All beer is made out of water, hops, barley, yeast, and adjuncts. So anybody who's uh, sat through any one of my uh, my little Cicerone prep courses or whatnot will hear me uh, extol the virtues of adjuncts, and you're going to hear it tonight uh, because uh, I'm a really big fan of adjuncts, and I think they belong in beer. They actually make everything much more complex. So uh, we'll get to them at the end, but uh, leading up to that, let me start with you with water. So water uh, is one of the main you know, components of beer, obviously, 90 plus percent of every beer is water. It's actually one of the reasons that I like to tell people that all beer is a local product. Uh, you know, you can be using ingredients from around the world. I get my barley at uh, at Mystery from Belgium and Germany and uh, the U.S. and Canada and England and all kinds of good stuff like that. I get my hops out of France and uh, England and Germany and the Pacific Northwest, but 90 plus percent of my water is, uh, or my product is local because I get my water out of the local water system, which pulls out of the local river uh, and gets cleaned up and sent over to my brewery, which means that the vast majority of my product is local. So water, very, very important. And uh, water has one really enormously important characteristic to it, uh, and that is it is polar. And so that seems like a really weird thing to say, but uh, what it basically means is that water is a universal solvent. So uh, because water is polar, uh, it can dissolve a lot of things into it. So, you know, all of the components that eventually become beer have to dissolve into water. It's basically the conveyance upon which you're getting sugar and hops and all these flavors and everything like this. It's all because those chemicals are soluble in water. Uh, and that water is going to be bearing the alcohol and flavor and loveliness that is going to be carbonated and uh, delivered into your mouth as beer. It is absolutely the most important characteristic of water. The second most important characteristic of the water uh, is the stuff that's solubilized into it, which tastes good. So if you don't have good tasting water, you don't have good tasting beer. Uh, and there's a lot of other factors that you can really get into. And if this were going to be a real technical podcast, which you know maybe we'll we'll get into down the road in the future, uh, we'd be talking about alkalinity or acidity, water hardness, and good stuff like that. 
Um, but really what I want to focus on, if you're going to be talking about water, uh, it's the solubility so that you can get good stuff into it and the fact that it tastes good because the stuff that's dissolved into it is great stuff. Um, so next, hops. So what are hops? Um, hops are one of the newest ingredients in beer. They were only really put into beer in the last few hundred years, and after you know 5,000 years of brewing history, it's actually uh, you can consider hops pretty modern. They are the flower and fruiting body of the humulus lupulus plant, and that's part of the Cannabice family, which has two members, its pot and hops. So, you know, two of the more um, popular plants in the state, or really in the world, really. Uh, And uh, they carry a lot of the same characteristics. Hops are dioecious, uh, which means that they both have male and female plants. We, uh, like pot use the female plant in brewing they uh, are the only ones that create the uh, the alpha acids that we're looking for that actually create the um, the bittering characteristics that we're looking for in beer and uh, we try not to avoid uh, try to avoid pollinating hops while we're um, while we're growing them for the very much the same reason in that we get seeds in them uh, and hop seeds can create a lot of interesting off flavors and uh, you know more unpleasant bitterness and good stuff like that the reason that hops were eventually used in brewing, uh, you know, people used to use all kinds of crazy things in beer. They would use, you know, sweet gale and yarrow and uh, and all these herbs, you know, wormwood and uh, maybe things that were even more poisonous in beer to create bittering effect and really fight against the the bitterness in beer. But uh, hops had this really interesting quality. Uh, not only are they, you know, probably more pleasant bitterness than a lot of the other things that people had been using over the centuries, but hops are antibacterial. And so when people started using hops, they noticed that their beer was actually lasting longer um, because it has this wonderful active antibacterial property. In fact, I've noticed uh, over time that every time I make a really big IPA, uh, my beers take longer to ferment. And a lot of that is because uh, the hops are, have this really wonderful property in which they actually stop everything from growing in it really well. And that includes yeast sometimes, I think. Uh, it can also, you know, mean that your beer takes a much longer time to do all kinds of things, spoil in growlers and bottles and kegs and good stuff like that. Uh, even though hop character itself goes away fairly quickly, the chemicals that hops impart into the water uh, actually stick around and, and stop bacteria from growing. So uh, hops balance the sweetness of the malt. Uh, you have a, a lot of sugar in beer. All beer is actually made out of an enormous amount of sugar. Uh, and so without hops, beer would be very, very sweet. Uh, even the, the drier beers probably would be fairly sweet. And so hops are there as a foil against the sweetness. Uh, so it means that we can actually taste a beer and have a nice pleasant balance of flavors and harmony of flavors rather than just you know taste something that's always very sweet. Uh, and the most important quality, of course, is that hops are absolutely delicious. So the way hops work uh, is through uh, solubilizing of isomerized alpha acids. Uh, and so every home brewer is like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, but for you uh, non-technical people out there, what basically happens is that there's a certain amount of acid content in the hops that uh, during the the boil of the wort, uh, they go under a chemical reaction. And it takes a fairly long time for this chemical reaction to happen. Uh, so the longer you boil hops, the more bitterness you derive from them. Uh, but what happens is those uh, the, the chemical in there um, gets isomerized. And it just basically changes shape. Uh, and 
creates a flavor that is bitter to humans. Uh, and so like I say, it's a, it's a long process. And so the more you boil hops, the more of uh, those alpha acids become isomerized and the more you actually have uh, a, a bitter tasting beer. So what that means is that brewers tend to use hops at different times during the, during the boil to create different effects. So uh, hops that have been in a boil for a very, very long time, 60, 90, 120 minutes, uh, have are a lot of bitterness. And hops that have been in the boil for a very, very short amount of time, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes, have a lot more flavor and aroma. Uh, and that's why uh, brewers use these hop schedules, because if you're making a really big, robust IPA, you want something that's more than just really, really bitter. You also want something that has a lot of flavor and a lot of aroma. And in fact, a lot of brewers use hops even later in the process. Uh, dry hopping, of course, you know, you're adding hops in the fermenter or you're putting hops in the whirlpool uh, for different reasons post-boil. So you can get a lot more hop oils out of the out of the hops. And those oils are the things that actually deliver a lot of uh, aroma and flavor. Uh, there are a bunch of different varieties of the the hops and different ways that you can use hops. There's probably, uh, just off the top of my head, I don't have a good number, uh, probably 100, 150 different varieties of hops that have different flavors and characters uh, to them. The uh, And people use them in different ways. So the most common ways uh, that, that brewers use them are as pellets. They're actually uh, crunched up and pelletized that look a lot like rabbit food. And brewers use the pellets because they're very efficient, uh, especially to keep. Uh, it's a lot easier to keep pounds and pounds and pounds of hops in a very small place when they're pelletized than when they're in whole flowers. When they're whole flowers, they basically uh, are you know these giant pillows. They take up a huge amount of space, whereas pellets are very very small. Uh, and then a lot of the larger brewers are actually use extracts uh, or or other derivatives of hops, tetra hop and this kind of thing. Uh, and that's because they're looking basically for just bitterness out of those hops uh, and they can use that you know with just a, a hop extract or maybe sometimes just flavor so it's uh, there's a, a bunch of different ways you can use it most craft brewers are going to be using pellets um, or whole flower hops we actually use whole flower hops just for dry hopping or in casks and then uh, pellets are used in the brew because they're a lot easier to clean up um, so the hops are measured in what's called an IBU. So an IBU is an interna international bittering unit. There's actually a really complex calculation that you can do to figure out the bitterness of a beer in IBU, and you can do a lab test. Uh, and uh, I have the equation in front of me, and I've, I've thought about the possibility of reading it, uh, but it just seems really complicated. So what I'll really uh, talk about is this. IBUs are metric, uh, and it, it actually is a really handy thing about them. Uh, what One IBU equals one milligram of isomerized alpha acid in one liter of wort. Uh, so they're an absolutely linear, measurable item in beer. However, IBUs are essentially subjective measurements. And uh, what I mean by that is that you know even though they're actually measuring a real volume of a chemical in a solution, uh, what you have is... Um, something that's uh, subjective to the to the drinker, and so if you have 30 IBUs in a very very low sugar solution, you have a very very bitter solution. Whereas if you have 30 IBUs in a very very high sugar solution, you have a very sweet solution, because um, the way that humans detect IBUs in liquids 
has everything to do with the amount of sugar that they're going up against. So uh, this is why uh, if you read Designing Great Beers by Ray Daniels, which is a really fantastic book, uh, he talks about BUGU ratio, which is a bitterness unit versus a gravity unit, in which he actually compares the bitterness units of every beer, the IBUs, versus the gravity units, the original gravity of every beer, to come up with uh, a ratio that suggests what the beer should taste like. Um, over at Mystery, that's how we actually uh, list we list IBUs on all of our uh, beers, but we also list um, a bitterness ratio on everything, because the higher that number is, you know, closer to one or higher, uh, the more bitter that tastes. But, you know, really the IBUs are, are subjective to the amount of sugar in the beer, and so we really try to show both and really want to be able to say to people, no, no, just because it's 30 IBUs doesn't necessarily mean it's super bitter. Heck, just because it's 75 IBUs doesn't mean it's super bitter. Sure, it's got a lot of bitterness in it, but it can also be very sweet. So we, we, uh, we really try to show that, and I think it's a really important measurement in hops. So other really important thing, of course, is barley. Uh, and when we talk about barley, we specifically mean malted barley. So uh, all beer is essentially uh, has a base of malted barley. Any other source of sugar in beer that isn't malted barley is considered an adjunct. So we'll get to the adjuncts in, in just a minute. But let's talk about barley and why barley. Because, uh, you know, it seems, if you really think about it, kind of arbitrary. Like, you know, why would we use barley over any other type of grain? There's lots of grains in the world, and barley isn't necessarily the most plentiful grain. Uh, and sometimes, in fact, it can be a little bit more expensive than other grains. But So, you know, why would we use barley over, say, wheat? Is it just because all wheat beers taste like bananas? Yes and no. So the thing about barley is that it has uh, a really good balance between protein and starch. Uh, so you actually have uh, a really good source of... Um, starch to be able to uh, convert into sugar and yet you know not so much uh, uh, protein not so much a lack of a protein so you don't have a good body or anything like that uh, it also has a really unique enzyme content that's really beneficial to brewing so uh, all barley contains both alpha amylase and beta amylase and those uh, enzymes are actually used to uh, break down starches into sugars while barley is growing uh, and you know into a full plant Brewers actually use those same enzymes to create starches to change starches into sugars during the brewing process. So it's a it's a really uh, important uh, thing that happens. Uh, and in fact, you often use barley with adjuncts that don't have those enzymes in order to create sugars from the starches in those adjuncts. Uh, the other thing that barley has is it has a really good husk, a really good strong husk that protects the malted grain, uh, and it actually provides a natural filter for. Uh, for brewers while they're brewing and laddering. Uh, so it allows us to, to actually use barley as its own filter. And then, of course, because you know it has all this wonderful starch content, uh, we can malt it to different uh, types of flavors and, and colors and all kinds of good stuff like that. So there are two main types of barley. There's two-row barley and there's six-row barley. Six-row barley is primarily American. Two-row barley is primarily European. There are you know, varieties here and there otherwise. Um, six-row barley... Has, usually has much higher enzyme content, so it can convert a lot more starches into sugars. It has a much higher protein content, so it actually uh, creates a slightly hazier beer, uh, and a much lower starch content, so it has much lower uh, potential extracts or much lower sugar available, but all of these enzymes. 
two-row barley, which is the primarily the European barley, is basically the opposite of that. So it has a much lower enzyme content and a much lower protein content, so it'll make a much clearer beer. Uh, but it has a much higher starch content and thus much more sugar. It's one of the reasons that a lot of craft brewers use a lot of uh, of two-row barley versus six-row barley because they get a lot more sugar out of it uh, and also a lot more flavor and a much clearer beer. It's much less efficient to use. Um, and so you end up uh, using more of it, if that makes any sense. You're making higher alcohol beer, you're getting more flavor. Uh, you don't have the same kind of enzyme content, so it's not quite as efficient to extract the sugars. Um, but we end up getting more caramelization and more flavor. It's, it's a, uh, for a lot of craft brewers, uh, a fairly good trade-off. Uh, though a lot of craft brewers are also using a lot of American and, um, and Canadian malts, which are also six-row, that are just you know very well malted. And there's not a really giant difference between six-row and two-row uh, in, the, in the market anymore. A lot of snooty craft brewers like me <laughs> prefer two-row. Um, <clears throat> so the way the malting process works says a lot to do, has a lot to do with how the, the barley ends up in the end. So uh, malting is basically a three-step process. You steep barley in water. These are barley seeds. They're straight off the plant. Um, and you soak them and you clean the grain and this kind of thing. Um, and aerate them uh, in this water, and that basically starts the germination process. So germination goes on, the, the seeds are removed from the water and they're laid out, and the germination process starts, and so all of these little seeds start to grow roots, and the roots uh, you know, are starting to grow, and there's this really controlled breakdown of cell walls and proteins inside of the barley kernel, uh, and all of these, these enzymes start getting fired up and start converting the starches that are naturally in the barley seeds into sugars, so that the barley seed can use those sugars as energy to grow. Then the maltster comes along and says, no, I'm heating you stopping the the, uh, the germination process and they you know generally use forced hot air at this point in, in history rather than um, fire which they used to do uh, way back in the day uh, and they stop that germination from from happening and sort of freeze this um, the sugars in place so uh, at this point they can actually kiln it or roast it to different degrees they get a lot of caramelization that happens in the kernel uh, or maybe sometimes just a very little bit like if you're making a really light pilsner malt or something like that uh, you don't do a lot of kilning you're just you know caramelize you stop the germination process you caramelize the sugars just a little bit um, and then you uh, then you have your malt you can also make you know chocolate malt is also made out of barley and so that's a very very intense roast and they're very very dark uh, um, kernels and taste a lot like coffee uh, or chocolate of course and have, uh, impart a lot of flavor and um, it all happens in the same uh, part of the malting process. This is after germination is stopped, kilned, and roasted. Uh, and this is all the base ingredients for most beers. You know, most of the beers that you have out about in the world are barley-based beers. Uh, you know, you could throw adjuncts in for character and quality and this kind of stuff, uh, but it's all barley that's giving you, you know, most of the, the giant characteristics in beer. So, Yeast, uh, the other main of the four ingredients. So yeast is a unicellular fungus. And, uh, and all brewing yeasts are actually in the Saccharomyces genus. So Saccharomyces uh, literally means sugar fungus. Uh, there's um, The two main ones that we use are Saccharomyces cerevisiae and Saccharomyces pastorianus, uh, which used to be Carl Bergensis, uh, if I'm saying that correctly. And so there, uh, 
there's something that I really want to talk about here, and that is that um, there's two main ways uh, that people generally talk about yeasts. And so uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae ale yeast is generally referred to as top fermenting yeast. Uh, fun that you're listening to this on top fermented. Saccharomyces pastorianus is often referred to as bottom fermenting yeast, and that would be lager yeast. Um, the two main differences between the yeasts is their fermentation temperature uh, and the flavors that they create while they're um, fermenting. But what they don't do is ferment in different places. And so this is something that I want to bring up because uh, it's a big myth in the beer industry that actually drives me kind of nuts. And I'm, I'm not a really big fan of it, and it gets perpetuated constantly. But there is no such thing as top fermenting yeast and bottom fermenting yeast. Where this comes from is that back in history, uh, when people didn't have a really good idea of what yeast was, they would... Uh, uh, harvest the yeast from different places. So top fermenting yeast has uh, is very active, and while it's fermenting, it generally will have a very large krausen on the top, and the krausen is basically, it looks like you've just poured a mug of beer, right? So you have all of this foam on the top of the, on the, top of the, the beer while it's fermenting, and it's this uh, big rocky head, and there's actually a fair amount of yeast in that, as you know, because the there's so much motion in the liquid while it's fermenting that you end up having this giant, you know, head of yeast floating around on the top of the beer. So brewers used to skim that off and use that as the basis for fermenting their next beer because they could get a lot of yeast out of that. Even though they didn't know it was yeast, they called it God is good. They thought it was this, you know, magical thing that was falling out of the air or that, you know, God was imparting into their liquids because they were such good people. Uh, and uh, they didn't realize that they were just inoculating their next brew uh, with live organisms. You know, they knew that if they took this stuff, this scum off the top of one beer, they could put it into another and they would get something that was very similar. Uh, so they thought that was top fermenting. And when people suddenly figured out uh, what lager yeasts were, uh, they were always harvesting them out of the bottom of their casks and the bottom of their barrels um, because that's where they found them at the end of fermentation. I mean, you're you're talking about uh, something that, you know, when you're lagering, your uh, lager literally means to store. Uh, so when they, people were making lagers, they were just throwing this, these beers into, um, you know, into a cask in a cave and letting it sit cold for months and months and months. Um, you know, you brew something in March to drink in September. And at the end of that, when you're uh, getting that yeast out to use for the next brew, you're pulling it out of the bottom of the, uh, of the fermenter. And even when you're watching lager yeast ferment, because it's cold and because it's, uh, it's a less active yeast, it doesn't have the same kind of giant rocky head at the top that ales do when they ferment. You know, you're talking about ales can ferment out in three days and lagers can take up to 30. And so there's a huge difference in the amount of uh, activity that's actually going on in the liquid. It doesn't mean that, there's, that they're fermenting in different places. So top fermenting and bottom fermenting yeasts total myth. Uh, They're different organisms uh, and ferment in different ways and actually create different flavor characters. Ale yeasts tend to create a lot of esters, have a lot of fruit character to them. Lager yeasts uh, do not create the same kind of ester profile. In fact, very, very few esters. They do have a sulfury component, which is one of the reasons that lagers can come out so dry because that sulfur flavor actually tastes very dry. But they ferment everywhere throughout the entire liquid. There's also some other yeasts that people use. There's uh, Britannomyces uh, bruxellensis or Lambicus. These are generally uh, were considered spoilage organisms in in uh, in wine. 
in a lot of uh, a lot of people are using them in beer now, including us. Uh, they actually can have some really funky flavors, some sort of barnyardy type flavors, uh, but they can also be uh, incredibly dry and very sour and really beautiful and delicate. And so a lot of brewers are really getting into using Britannomyces now. Uh, and people tend to also brew with uh, with bacterias, but we'll save that for another another podcast. Um, so let's talk about adjuncts. Um, you know, we can talk about how yeast uh, grows and, and everything like that. Uh, I'm not sure it's entirely uh, necessary for this podcast, but I really want to talk about adjuncts, and I can see them already running well over 20 minutes. So an adjunct. Uh, as I said before, an adjunct is an ingredient uh, which is meant to supplement the primary source of sugar in the mash, which is malted barley. So they tend to get a really bad reputation because they can be used as a cost-cutting measure. You know, people say adjuncts, uh, you generally think about uh, Budweiser, right? Hey, I have corn and rice in my beer. Uh, But that's not necessarily what an adjunct is. Sure, absolutely, corn and rice are adjuncts, uh, and they can be used to, you know, as just a source of sugar uh, because they can be a lot cheaper to use, and uh, especially if you have a lot of really good science and can throw some enzymes in there uh, that doesn't necessarily come from barley and break down those sugars and break down the starches from those adjuncts into sugars, you can basically get a lot of alcohol with absolutely no flavor and no character, uh, and that can be used as a really good way to buff up the alcohol content in your beer and make it more desirable without actually raising the cost very much. However, Adjuncts can also be used to lend a lot of desirable characteristics to beer. And the things that I'm talking about when I say that are things like wheat or rye or oats or unmalted barley or sugars or fruits uh, or even some spices. Uh, You know, any spice that has uh, sugar content can be used as an adjunct. And these things are really, really important in beer. You know, people have a lot of uh, a lot of respect for the Rheinheitsgebot, and it does take an enormous amount of skill to be able to brew a very wide palette of beers using the, wide, the Rheinheitsgebot. And you can brew virtually every style of beer using just those four ingredients. But as soon as you add in that fifth element of the adjunct, you open up your world of beer. You, uh, it's just absolutely unbelievable what you can get by adding in a little bit of sugar, brown sugar, by adding oats, by adding rye, by adding roasted rye or roasted wheat. Uh, the number of combinations of beers that you can make using a really simple palette of adjuncts is really astounding. And once you start realizing that the world is full of sugar-producing fruits and plants, um, it just gives this amazing, uh, beautiful reign of, uh, uh, range of, of things that you can use in beer uh, to create new beers and create new flavors. And it is actually, uh, we have, as brewers, have just barely scratched the surface of the flavors that are available to us via adjuncts. And I hope that it's something that we as American brewers who tend to be on the cutting edge and moving forward uh, with adjuncts, I hope we continue to do this even more because uh, it is something that is... uh, The future of craft is finding as many different flavors and uh, and ideas as we can. And a good range of those is going to come through adjuncts and the use of adjuncts. Um, So... There it is, uh, also a very important piece of brewing. Uh, This is a a really rough overview of all the ingredients, and it's something that I hope that uh, I can point people back to in the future. Uh, 
just to tie it into uh, a little bit more uh, wider idea, uh, this is something that brewers think about a, a lot uh, in the industry. So uh, if I'll give me another four minutes and I'll, I'll tie this around to the larger industry. Um, we look a lot at barley selection and hop selection. You know, people talk about brewing as a really consistent process. And so you use all of these different um, ingredients to create beers that are ostensibly the same every time we brew them. But in the grand scheme of things, um, everything that we use is at some point a live organism, right? So we're using hops and barley that change from crop year to crop year and yeast, which changes uh, generation to generation. And in a batch of beer, you can get four generations of yeast. Uh, so we talk a lot about consistency and, uh, you know, making sure that the beer tastes the same, exactly the same every time. And it's something that I, f I think is a little artificial in brewing. And um, I kind of wish that sometimes people would uh, talk more about consistency of quality than consistency of flavor. Because, uh, you know, if you look at the wine industry, they're also using a, an organic uh, component uh, in grapes. And so, um, people talk a lot about how vintages change from year to year and about how their ingredients are changing and, you know, based on the climate and the season, the growing season that they had and stuff like this. And they have a real advantage in that year to year, their ingredients are being grown at roughly the same site uh, and really changing, you know, how that uh, that wine is going to end up. And they can actually say, well, you know, this year's batch is made from this year's grapes, and so the vintage tastes like this. And beer doesn't quite have that same uh, advantage. But um, I find myself wishing often that, that brewers would celebrate the ingredient changes uh, and how beer can taste differently based on the ingredient changes that we come across rather than try to squash them. Uh, year to year, hops have different alpha acid contents. And so, uh, you know, the Aramis hops that I'm very, very fond of uh, were 8% alpha acid, uh, you know, the first year that I used them, and 6.5% uh, the second. And it made a really big difference in the flavor of, the, of my beers. And uh, rather than, you know, really try to change how the beers were formulated in order to, to take into account that alpha acid change, I'm much happier to let that alpha acid change go through and affect the flavor of the beer and talk about how, hey, the hops are different because they were harvested in a different year. Um, we have a particular advantage in that in mystery in that we do change the beers year to year and come around to them as sort of in a vintage-like manner uh, and that a lot of brewers don't. You know, if you're making Lagunitas IPA, you're making it year-round. Uh, and you can't just say, oh, yeah, hey, the hops changed. So sorry, the IPA doesn't taste the way it has. Uh, I guess it's different now. And I, I kind of get that. At the same time, uh, I wish more brewers would talk about, you know, how their ingredients do change because they change a lot uh, between the barley and the hops. Uh, we look at, at crop years all the time and see how they're changing. You know, the starch content and protein content of the barley changes year to year. The alpha acids change in the hops year to year. And all of the adjuncts that we use change. And the yeast changes batch to batch. Uh, you know, a lot of brewers will tell you flat out that when you get a fresh pitch of yeast from a lab, uh, it just doesn't ferment as well as it does in the second pitch. Uh, it takes a little while for that yeast to acclimate itself to being in an alcoholic beverage. Uh, and, you know, it just wasn't in that in a lab. It was in, a, in an aerobic environment and in a growth environment. And now you're putting it in an anaerobic environment and asking it to create alcohol and CO2, uh, which it only does really under stress and duress. So 
all of these things can really change and really develop flavors in beer and uh and it's one of the reasons that that we do uh what we do at mystery and i I really wish that uh more brewers would really celebrate those changes instead of trying to uh really wear the consistency hat I think that that consistency is the realm of the big brewers they can do it really well uh and you know really hide any changes that the ingredients might have and i think that one of the advantages that craft has is to showcase those ingredients and showcase those changes and i kind of wish they would a little bit more um so there it is thanks for listening this has been a particularly long one but i hopefully it's been a fun one uh and i will see you again next week on a more regular schedule uh when uh, uh we're you know not fighting different things uh going on uh then again we've got christmas coming up too so uh that might uh, the holiday might throw us for a loop but we'll see how it goes uh anyway thanks for listening this has been the top for Men podcast episode four and thanks for uh for coming along